This is Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Ollie Judge. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future in business. This week, we're going through the looking glass into the world of augmented reality. Over the last 10 years, we've seen all kinds of attempts to bring mixed reality to the mainstream. But on this episode, we wanted to get to the bottom of what's actually possible today. Joining me, I have two people from two very different sides of the augmented reality coin. This is Nitin, someone who's actually already building projects in this space. Hi, I'm Nitin Demre. I've been an entrepreneur in the mixed reality space for about four years. I currently run two startups, one in the pure augmented reality space and another one in uh, phone-based virtual reality. And this is Kerry, who's looking to really get to the bottom of how we can use AR in business. Hi, I'm Kerry Bumaya and I am CTIO, Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at Capgemini Invent. With this episode, we wanted to understand the pragmatic ways in which businesses can use augmented reality. It's a technology that often gets bundled in with mixed reality and virtual reality. But the role of augmented reality is to enrich our surroundings and help people make more actionable decisions. Many issues stand in the way of the augmented reality technology we've seen in films. The devices still don't have the traction or the capability that we expect, and moving from a flat screen to a 3D environment causes a whole new set of problems in the creation process that need to be solved through new skills and training. Before we get to any of that, though, it's worth understanding what augmented reality is actually good at. So let's make some things tangible. What kind of problems can AR tackle? How can you think about those problems if they've never been tackled before? There's new data in the ecosystem that we could begin to adapt. But with the limitations of the devices that we have right now, the, let's say, lack of understanding from going from flat to 3D within enterprise, what are the skills and things that we can really begin to apply to AR right now that you see as a bit of an opportunity? In general, the current state of AR, it's good for more or less four things. How I like to describe them is embedded and on-demand data display, right? So essentially what this means is that based on the environment, you can feed reality data seamlessly into your environment. The second is enhanced remote presence. So when an expert who's sitting in a completely different geography can guide someone on the field in real time, then you have enhanced remote control. An expert who's far away is actually controlling a machine which is remotely present. So we've seen things around surgery and stuff like that. And then there is simulated reality. Simulated reality is how you can change what is around you. There are applications in healthcare. So things like molecule manipulation, I, I believe Pfizer's doing some molecule manipulation and creation of new molecules using AR. There is some mental health experiences. So in general, there are these four broad categories that you can do stuff with AR in. Anywhere where you need an expert who's far away to solve a problem, that's one great use case. Anywhere where you have a lot of data and you want to visualize, have a synthesis of different data streams together in one place, that's a great use case. And collaboration. This one fantastic visualization that I've created for, I don't know, the aerospace industry, right? I can have someone else who's sitting in New York, for example, at this moment, join me on the same session and we can share and uh, we can uh, discuss this model in real time together. So these three or four general areas is stuff where AR excels at. What have been the problems in developing real world applications for VR and AR products and bringing them to market? 
We know that the consumer adoption curve has been slow. I'm interested, why do you think that is? And broadly speaking, is it shifting today? There are two ways to answer this. One point is that the tech is still nowhere close to what science fiction has showed us. So in science fiction, you have people wearing glasses and things looking perfectly rendered. You have avatars getting transported and stuff like that. So the consumer expectation is that. And the technology is nowhere close. You have glasses like the HoloLens or the Magic Leap that you just spoke about. It is amazing tech. Huh? If, if you look at it from where it's coming from, it's amazing. But what consumers are looking for is not that at all. What they're looking for is probably a, something that we'll get in five years. That's point one. Point two is that the devices that do exist are extremely expensive. The HoloLens is $3,500. You cannot expect a normal consumer to have that, not having any relevant use case that he can use it for on the device side. On the content production side as well, the regular content production uh, pipelines that we know today in, in television and videos and films and stuff like that, these are not directly translatable for this. Because what happens is you have a television screen which is flat, but when you have glasses, you have the third dimension. So it's 3D content. The moment you have 3D content, it means you need meshes, you need objects, you need real-time rendering, real-time lighting. This is still fairly complex. With 5G and with better processing, with edge processing and stuff like that, it is getting better, but we are still far from what the consumers expect, which is also the reason why a lot of these devices, the HoloLens and the Magic Leap, were initially targeted as consumer devices. But now they're being rebranded to uh, enterprise because in enterprise, these guys have the money to pay for devices this expensive and they can build use cases which can use the technology that is currently existing, but for their own business processes or business optimization. Before we go any further, I think it's a good idea if we break down what is actually needed to build an augmented reality application. Nissen, could you give us a bit of a breakdown of the components that make up the technology behind augmented reality? The way I understand it is that there are four pieces. One piece, which is understanding of the space. The second piece is the display tech. The third piece is the content, which is 3D content. And the fourth piece are the interactions. So understanding space, there are different ways to do it. The simplest is just a QR code. Your phone camera detects a QR code and it overlays an image on top of it or a 3D model on top of it. But you can get more and more technical with it. There is an infrared sensors like the Matterport and stuff like that. Time of flight LiDAR, which basically with one camera, it looks at the same point in space from different angles and creates a 3D mesh of it. And then there is the feature point recognition, which is called a SLAMS, a simultaneous localization and mapping. So basically... You take your camera and you move it around. It captures one spot and depending on the parallax and distance that your phone is moving, it will capture another spot. It will calculate what is the distance between them and so on. Like geometric understanding. Exactly, right? So these are more or less the ways today that you can do it. So here we're talking about augmented reality. In virtual reality, you have a different way of doing things. For example, in the Oculus Rift, it's called the inside-out sensing. So you have physical sensors in the space around you. And they know how to sense your headset. So as you move your head or your controllers in a space that these sensors can see, it knows where you are. That is outside in. Inside out is where you don't have the physical sensors, but you have sensors on your device itself. With your device itself, it does some sort of a slam mapping and uh, basically does either feature point recognition or infrared recognition. And it creates a model of the space around you. So this is on the space understanding side. 
and it is important to understand space in this uh, context because of the third dimension right it's not just a flat screen it's a 3d space that you need to map the second point is the display deck on the display side you either have a screen or you have a headset screens you know how it is it's a screen but you have a camera throughput the camera of your device captures the environment around it but overlays digital content the sdk either unity or ar core or whatever you using it overlays digital content in the context of the space so it's placed in a place if you move your camera around it is still in the place it doesn't drift along with your camera so that is on the screen side on the glasses side there are different technologies but the one which is most common and most mainstream is what is called the waveguide now a waveguide it's a rgb projector so you have your glasses but you have the stem on the on the side right so in the stem you have a projector which projects light and the device it turns it around and projects it directly into your retina you're seeing reality but the augmented part of it what ar foundation is doing on your phone is being done by this device it's just overlaying stuff onto the thing and the device itself has infrared sensors so it can sense space so the problem of drift is lesser on the display side these are the two main things Nitin, I'd like to get a good understanding of your journey, how you ended up in AR and how you've seen the technology develop in recent years. I've had a long career in essentially big companies, right? So I've started in India working on television and media, but more on the innovation side than in advertising, again, on the next gen advertising, that kind of stuff. Then I came to France to get an MBA, after which I was at Societe Generale for about seven years, working on digital banking, innovation within banking, that kind of stuff. But more personally about me, I'm, I'm like a lifelong learner, right? And this drive to find a better way to do things led me to establish my first mixed reality startup. This was in 2017. So because of my background in media and content production, our first try was to create content for mixed reality right now a bit of a background on why this so there are a lot of smart people and a lot of big companies investing in augmented reality and virtual reality yes there are technical challenges at the moment and the problem then will be one of content you have the tech to do it but what do people do with it you have to have something to show them and some crazy great stuff that will really impress them this was our strategy and we started building content around tourism and history in paris our first take was the notre dame and just as we'd finished the production of our thing the damn thing burned down so our content wasn't relevant anymore right content will go out of date very quickly and creating content for mixed reality is really hard you have 3d objects you have recordings you have spatial sound so it's it's fairly time intensive and things like this happen and your content is not up to date anymore so what do you do so we decided to build a platform for other people to create content which is easily upgradable but for mixed reality so our take was to target the tourism industry because paris is the home of tourism and tourism was growing double digits over the past 10 years so we were building a augmented reality platform for tour guides and tourism sites to create augmented reality visits on premises the product was built we were talking to our first tour guides to build the content with them we were talking to investors to raise capital and then covid happened so the tourism industry completely imploded so basically that project is on standby for the moment currently i'm working on a phone based virtual reality solution for the fashion industry where the problem that we are solving is that it is impossible to try on clothes while shopping online 
which leads to 35% of the people returning their purchases and inefficient return logistics. So that's a short snapshot of my journey. That's not just a stop snapshot of your journey. I think it's a snapshot of how this entire industry has kind of changed. So AR and VR, we've been hearing about it for a long time. I heard about AR and VR the first time back in 2013. Then there was a lot of hullabaloo that was being created when Magic Leap first came out. And I think that was in like 2017 or so. I think like what's interesting that I want to get your insider perspective on, okay, I get it that you went from what you were doing before, which is traditional media, and you found like a new medium. And you said, okay, fine, I'm going to translate what I've learned over here through this new technology. But then when you look at the actual technology, you get hit by these very contradictory waves. On one side, you have a lot of technological improvement that happens. So you've got more and more people who are kind of trying to apply this and build it. And then there's a lot of money coming in from investors. If you look at any kind of market chart, you're going to find that every year, the amount of money that flew into VR and AR projects and startups has kept going up and up and up. Big companies like Sony, Facebook, everyone got involved. But no matter how much money and technology you put at something, if there's no consumer adoption curve, it doesn't make any sense. What's quite interesting about this AR space and definitely that shift between consumer and sort of professional use cases is that the tools that you need to make the things, the content for all of this stuff are still heavily rooted in industries that are more consumer focused. So in order to create 3D environments, you're using video game engines. So how does that bridge work? And this might actually be a question for Kerry as well, where you're looking at sort of enterprise tech, which tends to be a little bit slower, it's harder to integrate things. And then what you're doing is adding this giant creative layer, which is a huge problem. Even on, on the video game level side, you were talking about real-time lighting, all that kind of stuff. Like You need a pretty hefty graphics card just even to get that done. How are enterprise people going to get their heads around all of this stuff? Or is it going to be a slow process? Is it still just going to be small experiments for the next five years to try and get things like HoloLens off the ground? I remember back in 2013, I think, when I was working in a manufacturing company, we had an innovation project. And one of the ideas that I proposed was in any manufacturing plant, they have identical machines, whether the factory is based in Brazil or China or India, doesn't really matter. It's the same machine. And one thing that I found which was very peculiar was that every time we had like an error or the machine broke down and you had to do its planned maintenance, there was like a huge amount of time that was actually spent in identifying the problem, figuring out the right solution. And it, when we started kind of surveying who were the people who would be called to solve a problem, especially in a certain machine, they, they would say like, oh, call Jean-Pierre because he's the guy who knows how this machine works the best. And turns out Jean-Pierre has been working on these machines for the past 20 years. He knows them inside out. He probably is capable of writing the working manual. So if you were able to have a solution in which just by looking at where the machine is, scanning it, and having a distributed network, an internal network, obviously, that anyone in the company who operates on that machine, wherever they're based on in the world, could have the solution that Jean-Pierre does every time he sees this machine breaking down, that's a great way in order to do troubleshooting. And I actually proposed an idea for this, which was called Troubleshooter, in which you had like a machine, you could scan it, you could identify the problem, and you had either a training video, which could be made as AR-based if necessary, in order to address these kind of issues. That has massive impacts on cash, on your downtime, your cost of ownership, the amount of time you spend on maintenance. And if you're trying to get any company to adapt to new technology, they never have a problem saying that, yeah, this is a great tech. The question is, how much does it actually cost? There is only one KPI in any large company, and I say this based on my own experience, that it's cash. So I think it's always important to kind of understand what is the applicability of this technology. 
and AR and VR till a couple of years back were not really seen in that way. But if you look at Unity today, most of the solutions that they're building are increasingly starting to move towards the manufacturing space, the automobile space. So I think we're seeing the adoption of this because it just makes economic sense. I completely agree. So uh, the content creation is difficult. But for enterprise, what matters, like Ari said, is the use case. So Microsoft, for example, last year, they launched something called Guides, which is a solution for the HoloLens, exactly for the problem that Gary just mentioned. It's remote assistance. It's an expert who creates a guide in the HoloLens itself. So he says, okay, first to disassemble this machine, the first step is you do this, and he shows you in which direction to turn it or what button to press and stuff like that. It's essentially an augmented guide of a machine. And this solution is really easy to use because it is a specific use case. So as industries can define specific use cases, content creation can become easier because you you optimize it in a way that is easy for someone who is from that specific industry. But coming to broader-based use cases, creating content for marketing or stuff like that, for this, you would need, again, specialized people like 3D renderers, 3D modelers, Unity experts, video game experts. This need will arise sooner or later because, like I said, these glasses will become mainstream sooner or later. My experience with the video game industry is that it's almost like a Stockholm syndrome, right? The people are not well-paid. They're not happy. They work crazy hours. The only thing that drives them is the fact that they work for the video game industry. So finding these people might be easy because you just have to entice them to come for a better paying job. So the talent to create this content exists. And more and more, like Unity has, they are focusing a lot on the enterprise side. Carrie told me last week about the SAP Unity integration. There is a very clear pipeline for you to import SAP data into Unity and be able to build visualizations and stuff around it. So it is happening. And like I said, it, it depends on the use case, right? If the use case is well enough defined, the tools become easier. The use case space is also something which is more interesting. On one level, an outside person who looks at the SAP Unity partnership will think about it in the way that, okay, fine, SAP has got massive amounts of data which come from enterprises because they are an ERP system provider. And because you've got this amazing amount of data that comes in, you can now have some kind of use cases that can be built upon that, whether it's for predictive maintenance or just being able to do better simulation of your parts for different kinds of uses. But let's think about it on a second layer. If you are a company that's already a client of SAP, which a lot of big firms are, and you start saying, well, why are these guys actually doing this? Does it actually make sense for me to make that shift as well and adapt to this new technology? Think about it from this perspective. You now have the ability to use AR to become your problem solver. But more importantly, as you're able to kind of solve these problems, you realize that the people who are the really good problem solvers are the ones who've got a lot of experience. They have tacit knowledge. They've got 20 years of hands-on experience. And when these people come to a retirement age, they leave, they take that tacit knowledge with them. So you now have a way to actually encode that expertise in this problem-solving mechanism. But more importantly, what actually happens through that is that your knowledge management system is now part of your problem-solving system. That's what SAP provides. And from that, you branch out and say that, My problem solving, my knowledge management, and my training systems are now all the same thing. Because the same kind of input that comes from real-world problem solving is now your knowledge management system, which you can now use to train someone who's coming in who's very new, who doesn't have 30 years of experience, but he can see Jean-Pierre's work from before, and you you just reduce that learning curve quite a bit. We're also seeing this kind of alignment 
Well, what you essentially have got is not just a digital twin. You now have a way to do actual informed strategy because of that. You can see, okay, which is the machines which are you know having a lot of problems. If you invest in any of this, it's very capital intensive. There's a huge cap expenditure that comes in with that. So you're not just using your digital twin to reduce your operating cost, but you're also using it to make informed decisions on where you need to do investment moving forward because you have this nice streamlining between your problem-solving knowledge management systems as well. For the longest time, VR and AR were, you know, it, it was the hype thing. It was the thing that people would bring along to trade shows and be like, oh, look, you can wear an Oculus and we put a car in an environment. Look at it. Isn't it shiny? How do you avoid gimmicks in this space? So if we think about the tools that people use to create these things like Unity and Unreal and all that kind of stuff, and even if we're thinking about the new products that SAP will come out with, and I'm sure Microsoft and Amazon and Facebook are going to come out with stuff, but they're just going to be features. How would you create an actual business case for this stuff and avoid Oh, look, new shiny thing. So for example, Apple are probably going to come out with something next year, but should you be building something for that Apple platform or should you be waiting for it to mature because it's Apple's first step into the space? How do you think about that? And how do you stay resistant to just new shiny? It's a tough one because there is huge consumer interest in this tech, right? Because all the science fiction films that we've seen and Blade Runner and all of that, this kind of immersive environment and everything has been in people's imagination for a while. So there is immense amount of consumer interest. Given that the tech is not at the level that consumers expect, we are far from uh, where we need to be for these kind of experience to become mainstream. And the only way to it is through it. You have to go through all the steps. You have to identify the use cases. You have to be rigorous about it. Being gimmicky is fine, but it will give you interest of someone for a week and say, and they're going to say, okay, then what? You know, what next? It's going to take you another six months to create something else which you do for the next conference. And then what? It's important to identify exactly what you are addressing. It's easy to make gimmicks. When you're trying to make a direct-to-consumer kind of a product or a solution, having the ability to make something which can be appealing to a general mass populace is very difficult. This is why I think it's interesting to see the adoption of AR and VR and mixed reality in different kinds of institutions. Oxford University did something really interesting. So they have released a new project, which is called Cabinet. I don't know if you guys have heard about this. It's really interesting. And you can go on their website to check it out. It's cabinet.ox.ac.uk. And if you go inside over there, Oxford has got access to hundreds of years of artifacts, artistic pieces of work, statues, etc., etc. And there's a constant problem in terms of the deterioration and maintaining them and everything else. More importantly, they are physical units, so it's very hard for a scholar who's focusing on, let's say, the study of Michelangelo's figurines. He actually has to go there, and they have to sit down over there and do it. What Oxford did was for the past two or three years, in total silence, as normally these great projects are run, they scanned all of this and made like AR representations of it. So today, if you're an affiliated researcher or if you're a student within Oxford itself, you can go directly to this portal and you can jump right in and you can take these artifacts and you see them in a very augmented reality way. You, you don't have to have any special equipment. You can do this directly on your computer. But they were able to make these 3D renderings of it with a ridiculous amount of detail. Like if you zoom in, you do like a 500x zoom in, you can still see the scratches. You can see the inscriptions that were made by different people. And this is one way in which they are bringing this heritage, which they have inherited over hundreds of years, and making it available to a mass populace. Now, am I going to go there and look at this stuff? 
quite frankly, no. But I know that this is something that's interesting, that people who have an artistic pen, they can jump inside over there. You're democratizing access to a very privileged resource because of the fact that you've been able to use AR technologies to kind of make it more accessible to a number of people. And I think it's the same thing. So just as Oxford was able to take this tech and make an application for it in a very specific area, if you go to a manufacturing plant today and tell them that, yeah, using AR and VR, we can make holograms, maybe it doesn't make any sense to them. Like, what are you going to do with it? But if you go ahead and tell them that, look, you can now actually make a virtual representation of your factory flow, based on which we can now do scenario planning. Okay, so let's say that you're a steel manufacturer and you get inside over there and you have a virtual representation. And this virtual representation, it's interactive because it's got people and you can see where people are making common mistakes. What are the decisions that they make when they're working on these industrial plants? And what happened if they made different decisions? How would that actually increase productivity? How would that reduce the amount of waste that's actually going on over there? And this is what I think is useful in terms of AR for the enterprise. It's the fact that you now have the ability to coincide over there and make better decision-making. And the best way to do it is not by saying that here's a nicely packaged kind of system or a product which you can now just plug and play. No, no, no. You give them an SDK kit. You give them an AR device, but at the same time, it needs to be offered as part of a larger ecosystem that's compatible with third-party operating system and developer kits that allow these companies to plug it into their existing system and then design and customize their own use cases. Today, I've already been seeing a couple of people who are offering these kinds of, of services. And this is the reason that I feel that we're seeing, we reach an inflection point when it comes to AR. Because every time you find an inflection point, you get the same market signals. You see more and more of these companies coming up with very specialized kinds of offers. And this makes more sense to me compared to going and having some blanket application. Because of getting that formula right is too hard. Completely agree. I, I think, let's call it the DCC, so the big creation programs, they're too broad and it creates too many options for people to really get their head around and push towards. I think it'd be quite interesting to lean more into Kerry's point of moving away from, let's call it glasses and more into the window. Because everyone's phone, so long as they're relatively modern, has AR capabilities. And if you've got a modern iPhone, you've got LiDAR in there. So you, you've actually got good recording software at this point that can understand or has spatial awareness of what's going on at the time. So where do you think that people are going to start to see the first instances of, let's call it commercial AR? Obviously, we've had like IKEA put a chair in your room and that's fun for a little experiment, but it's not really showing the full extent. What do we think that the first solutions that we'll begin to see on sort of like a broader scale are? Is it purely rooted in that sort of like remote assistance category or, or are we going to see better use of the tools that everyone's carrying at the moment? We're working on a use case, which is the consumer facing uh, AR application where you get to try on the clothes that you're shopping online. You have an avatar and you can create your own avatar. You have 3D models of clothes. You can try them on. As a use case, it's a simple one. I mean, everybody would like to try on clothes while shopping online. The thing about AR and VR is, yes, it's a technology platform, but it is also a content platform. And this content is 3D, as in uh, you have the third dimension to consider. I'm involved with some content creators and stuff in this space. There's a lot of stuff happening on the how do you redefine film and cinema for this medium. So slow and steady, things are happening. People are coming out with proof of concepts. And there's a special in the South by Southwest Festival in the US. It's a technology slash culture festival that happens every year. 
Last year onwards, they started uh, VRMR category, where you have content creators producing films and short format video digital content for this medium. I think uh, more and more, we'll see this stuff coming out. But the real fire to the consumer's imagination will come from stuff like this. I don't know if you guys saw this, the Big Bang experiment that CERN did last year. In your living room, you can see what happened during the Big Bang. It's small stuff like this, which can capture the imagination of people. But again, the problem is that the creation of content is not straightforward. How do you actually go ahead and make this stuff? Because this is an interesting thing when you mentioned that it's not just content, but it's also the tech, because there is a huge amount of empathy that comes inside. When you are in an immersive experience, what it does is that it actually ignites your ability to be more empathetic. I think there was a research that was done by Stanford back in 2015 or something with virtual reality in which they made a bunch of people wear an AR headset. And every day they had to spend one hour going inside this virtual world where they were a lumberjack. They had to actually chop trees. And what they found was after like a week or two weeks of doing this silly exercise, that their consumption of paper went down by 70% because they had that kind of empathetic feedback loop which came inside. Now, when I look at shopping, I personally hate shopping. I prefer if I can just order it off of Amazon and I'm done. But I know that shopping is fun because it's a very social thing. So when you're trying to build this kind of a shopping experience, it's not just the fact that you need to get the information about what is the person's dimensions so that you can kind of like custom fit the clothes or they can at least see how it looks on them. But more importantly, how do you also engage that social aspect into it? Because all of this is involving a huge amount of computation and data. The more and more of this information and data that comes in, people seem to forget that there is a computational cost that comes inside with it as well. So how are you actually solving these problems today? Number one, getting the information necessary for the person to do what they can do in terms of trying clothes. Number two, being able to put them in an immersive experience like a virtual shopping mall. And number three, having that social aspect in which it's not just them going for shopping, but they're going there with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or whatever. So basically, on your mobile phone, you can create your own avatar using three photos. From these three photos, we extract 147 measurements. We are tying up with brands to get three models of their clothes, which will be perfectly accurate based on the right measurements and stuff like that. I agree that there's a lot of data in this, but what we are building is also a social platform, right? So the stuff that you see will be pre-filtered for you, depending on your measurements and your body type and stuff like that, but also from the people that you like, the people that you follow, the brands that you like, you know, your friends who buy clothes and share them with you. And you can also have a social experience because we have a multiplayer functionality where you can go with your friends into you are sitting uh, Ollie's in London I'm in Paris we can go together to a store in New York and buy something we've now got a broad understanding of how people can interact see all this kind of stuff but what data and computation do companies need to do a lot of this stuff so this is actually part of a broader question of is it too early for a lot of companies to begin thinking about this? Do we need to wait for some systems to mature? But if we're thinking about your use case, where we're talking about retail stores and the consumer, for what seems like quite a simple thing of just projecting some clothes onto a model, you've got to have an insane amount of data. You said like from three photos, you're pulling out hundreds of different data points. If we're thinking about doing something in a corporate world, which could be a hell of a lot more sophisticated, what kind of data do people need? 
is it just spatial data? Or, so if we're talking about supply chain, it's probably spatial data, but what other kind of applications are we looking at? What data do we need? And how much horsepower do we need to actually build that into something? Well, to be honest, the data that you need depends completely on your use case. But for the visualization itself, think of it like this. If you have an SPSS or some other data visualization software, you input data into it and it creates a visualization for you. So what data does SPSS need? It's the data that you want to visualize. But the level of visualization, the level of complexity depends on you. You can have just a simple bar graph or you can have a fully rendered pixel map with voxels and stuff like that. It depends completely on the use case. As far as the visualization capability of the devices themselves are concerned, that's easy. Once you have the models built, or once you have a system to build the models, either automated or static, for automated models, you would use something like an SAP or an SPSS and stuff like that. For static models, you would use Maya or uh, AutoCAD or things like that. To give you an example, we did a complete construction of the Notre Dame over two minutes, fast-forwarded 3D model of Notre Dame being built in front of you. And that project was about 600 MB in high-definition of course, it was optimized. We worked for almost four months optimizing it, making sure that the frame rate is enough and stuff. So it takes work, but it can be fairly less limited. The data requirements for the visualization aspect itself is not that high. And the devices that we have today are capable of rendering it. Speaking about devices, I have a question because I came across an interesting statistic recently that the object detection algorithm, which is normally on your smartphone, it consumes so much power because it has to do a lot of work in order to be able to take in the information that's coming out, figuring out what this actually looks like. There's like neural net stuff that's happening inside over there. That object detection algorithm, if you just use it for an entire hour, it will drain your entire smartphone battery. And I think this is something that's very important because you mentioned stuff like high frame rate, there's large resolution. All these things are very important, especially when you're working with any kind of an application which is on your phone and it's taking in visual imagery. In order for it to be able to do what it's required to do, such as this geometric understanding and stuff like that, it needs to actually do data expansion. How are you kind of dealing with this excessive amount of information that's coming in? And maybe the smartphone by itself, even if it's a 5G smartphone, is it capable of being able to deal with this kind of massive inflows of data in order to provide the solution that you have in mind? Are they hacks? Are they ways in which we can actually get the same kind of service that we want with AR without the need for excessive amounts of information. What I agree with you is on the fact that you can't look at AR alone. You have to look at it along with things like your machine learning models for object recognition or your sensor data for this thing. But a lot of this data is not really stored anywhere. It's on your device. So your device will look at your environment, scan it. It will have a model of your environment, but that model is not going anywhere. All the work that's happening is happening on your device. Your device is capturing data, sure. And your device is working hard. But on our side, we're not really capturing any of the data. While it's true that AR experiences and applications are battery intensive, it needs to analyze the data, whether it's on the edge or whether it's back on a server somewhere, right? It needs to analyze the data and be able to accurately render these things or position these things. I guess it's Moore's law in this context. It's going to get better and things are going to get faster and stuff. But for the moment, Yes, there are optimization techniques that you could use. But again, these are very use case specific. When I'm seeing the way that AR is being built right now with SDK kits coming out from Unity and stuff like that, 
it's very resemblant of the way that AI development actually started off. So AI development, if you look at it today, you've got pre-trained libraries. You've got models that are pre-trained. You have libraries which are easily accessible, like Spacey and stuff like that. There's a whole ecosystem vibe that comes when you look at AI today. Anyone who makes something, they're putting their code up over there. You can review it. You can fork it. You can make your own version of it. And that's one of the key primary reasons why AI, especially from 2017 onwards, it's kind of gone through that step jump kind of evolution. So when I look at AR today, I'm trying to figure out if that kind of community is also being built. Is there that kind of ecosystem which you guys are able to leverage today? Or is it a lot of like hands-on, you got to sit and actually build this stuff from scratch? In AR, use cases are limitless. It's like asking, what can you do with a smartphone? You can do practically anything. And each app that you have on your phone is a different use case. AR is similar. So we went from desktops to laptops to smartphones. The next step will be AR. It's a completely new paradigm in computing. Having said this, it comes with its complications, which are that you have to deal with the third dimension. For example, one of the things in the technical piece is that the content that you have is 3D models. Modeling 3D is not straightforward. And you cannot have a guy who creates architectural drawings suddenly come and start doing humanoid figures because it's a completely different skill set. Textures make a difference. Lighting makes a difference. How well your device can detect ambient light. This will make a huge impact on how you view the experience. Your two-year-old smartphone versus the latest iPhone. The experience will be completely different. This ecosystem, it exists, but it's very use case focused. There's a whole group of people building entertainment content, films in 3D or stuff like that. Then you have a completely different ecosystem around enterprise use cases. You have other guys trying to do stuff in tourism. There's people like us doing stuff in uh, e-commerce. The short answer is no. So we're seeing today the emergence of something which is now being called web AR or even web VR. You can now access this directly to the browser cabinet is a really good example of that. So I, I agree that this field is in its infancy, but it does offer that kind of platform paradigm, which is super useful to then create these kinds of ecosystems. What are your thoughts on this web AR? To be honest, web AR is useful. One of the ways to judge a good AR experience is the drift, right? So you place an object somewhere, you turn your camera on and you go back to it and see if it's still in its place, right? And if it's moved, basically the object is drifting. In web AR, the drift is crazy. I'm not saying it's not going to get better. Yes, of course, it's going to get better. But for the moment, none of the stuff that I do is on web AR. I would love to do web AR, right? Because people don't need to download a separate thing. You just send them a QR code, they scan it with the camera, and there you go. The quality that you can get from web AR is far from what uh, I want to put out there. We're going to talk about metaverses, and we're not going to go too far down the rabbit hole here, because I'm sure we could have another hour-long conversation about what a metaverse is and all that kind of stuff. But what we're going to do is think about the metaverse of the enterprise, so not you know Fortnite with all its different ways in. So a metaverse just broadly being described as an interconnected system of multiple mediums that people can interact with a central system in different ways. So... If we think about a metaverse for a company, uh, you've got people working on flat screens. So like us, when we do office work every day, we're staring at Word docs, Google docs, all that kind of stuff. Versus you've then got people in the field that are maybe working on pipelines or supply chains, factories, all that kind of stuff. What I really want to understand is what role does augmented reality have right now in the metaverse or the ecosystem of the enterprise. If we strip away all the hype and the like what ifs or we could do this, is there a role for it now? 
or are we still a ways off it actually integrating into all of those systems and not just sort of being an island with a single use case? Can an enterprise today exist without doing anything in AR? The answer is yes. Of course it is. There are companies doing it all the time right now. Is it a good strategy to not have an AR strategy? The answer is no, completely. Like you said, uh, Apple is coming up with something next year. Magic Leap has already proven that it works. Going forward in five years, we will have glasses. Earlier, I had a bigger screen, bigger window into the metaverse. Now I have a smaller window into the metaverse with my phone. Very soon, the window is going to be on my eyes. For me, there's no question that this will be the next computing platform. As it is in its infancy now, I believe that the time for any company to invest in this space is now. You grow with it. You experiment. You do POCs. You figure out what use cases today work for you. There are some ones which have been proven, like the remote assistance ones or the data visualization ones. People have been doing good work with this. The remote presence ones. Spatial did a fantastic demo in the, the Microsoft keynote last year. So there are these use cases. I agree that is it indispensable today? No. But in five years, it will be indispensable. And better get on the bandwagon. Huh? It's all about following the money. Okay. So I'll give you an example. One of my close friends is one of the world's leading experts on decision-making theory and simulation. He went to Microsoft and what he was able to do is he builds these 3D versions of their entire supply chain. His whole area of focus is the theory of constraints. So identifying the constraint. And the moment he was able to visualize this stuff in high amount of granular detail, he was then able to show like, this is where your bottleneck is. If you let this bottleneck, if you open it up, if you give this component in your value chain a little bit more resources, or you put like another person inside over there, you'll be able to get more orders coming in, et cetera, et cetera. And in the process, he was able to help Microsoft reduce their supply chain operational cost by around 300 million over a one and a half hour period. Why do we in consulting firms use so many frameworks and PPT? That's our main weapon of choice, PowerPoint, right? Because every time you're trying to actually convince people, whether it's a client or your team, the ability to visualize it is very important. Our brain takes the maximum amount of information through ocular data. The moment we are able to visualize something and showcase how this needs to grow, how it can be changed, how it can be created, et cetera, et cetera, what you do with people around you is you allow them to have a unified narrative, which helps in decision-making speed. So I'm reading a book right now, which is called Working Backwards, which is written by two guys who worked with Jeff Bezos at Amazon for decades. And now they've published this book in which they're talking about how Amazon works in the company. And one of the key reasons that they're very good at what they do and have become what they are today is because of the speed of decision-making. They have got processes, they have got methods, they've got acronyms and jokes all related to being able to move faster and faster in order to make these decisions. Now, maybe you have a Jeff Bezos running around your company today, and maybe he is someone who can help you put these kind of principles in place. But if you use technology and you're able to visualize a lot of the components of your company, and if that helps you in increasing the decision-making throughput, then I think that's why you should start thinking about seriously using it today. You have the ability today to take the necessary components of this technology and build the kind of decision-making solution you require. For me, that's where the interesting aspect of it is. It's being able to have a little bit more visual understanding of a very complex organization, which is super important, especially in firms like us. Once you reach a certain size, it's really important for you to be able to do that because that's how you actually make sure that you're moving at the same pace at which the market is evolving. 
that would be my key takeaway from this talk, from this little conversation. There's no doubt that augmented reality is going to become a major part of how we interact with technology and our data. Many of us already own devices that have advanced AR creation and consumption abilities. We do, however, have a long way to go to train ourselves to move into the 3D digital world. Success lies in the specifics. So we'll be bringing you more episodes about what the future of AR looks like in business. A big thank you to Nitin and Kerry. You can find out more about them and their work in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast was brought to you by Capgemini Invent. We'll see you soon.